0: It's Ken White.
1: And it's Josh Barrow. And this is Serious Trouble. Uh, So, Ken, we're actually going to start with this week with someone who is not in serious trouble or at least is not in serious trouble uh, with regard to one important piece of litigation uh, that had looked like quite serious trouble for him. And that's Elon Musk. Elon Musk faced a shareholder lawsuit claiming that back in 2018 when he tweeted that uh, he was thinking about taking Tesla private and that he had funding secured in order to do so. Um, he was sued by some shareholders who said that, you know, they bought Tesla stock or held Tesla stock because of that statement. And the statement wasn't true. He didn't have the funding secured. And then Tesla stock went down after people figured out that uh, there really wasn't this funding from the Saudi Public Investment Fund to take Tesla private. Uh, And so they say they lost money. They took him to court. They sued. Uh, He was on trial in San Francisco. It went to a jury, which is very unusual in these sorts of lawsuits. And the jury found unanimously in Elon Musk's favor, saying that he did not defraud uh, these Tesla investors. So that's a,
0: a very good outcome there for Elon Musk. It's a great outcome. It's a a big victory for him and for his lawyers, particularly considering he'd gotten some very damaging rulings in the case. The judge had found at summary judgment that um, it was just not disputable that his two tweets were false, that they were false statements, and that he was at least reckless – in making them. So that basically satisfied a couple of elements of the uh, securities fraud claim. And so it seemed like he was somewhat under the gun. And remember, he made a big show of saying that he couldn't get a fair trial in San Francisco what with all the laid off Twitter employees and the hostility towards big tech barons <laughs> and, and that type of thing. But that didn't turn out to be the case. And so the interesting thing you you say there, at least reckless, that means the
1: judge found that the statements were false and that either Elon Musk knew that they were false or that he should have known that they might be false. What does
0: recklessness mean in this context? In this context, it, it means should have known they were false, didn't take adequate measures to identify their truth. This is not the same standard as actual malice. Recklessness in the defamation context. Uh, of course, we lawyers love to use terms differently in different contexts. Uh, so this is a little easier standard for recklessness. But what happened here was that uh, you know his lawyers were able to turn it around largely by. Making the uh, very popular defense that we've talked about for so many years in so many contexts, look, this is just the way he is. <laughs> uh, so his, his lawyers were able to, I think, convey very effectively that he's you know a big personality. He says big things. People aren't likely to take them at face value, literally, and uh, therefore that's not what happened here.
1: And and so I guess the the question that was left for the jury in this trial, with the judge having already decided the statements were false, is that the jury basically had to – they had to rule about materiality and reliance. Materiality means were these statements important? Were they the sort of thing that a reasonable investor should have thought affects the value of Tesla and the value of Tesla's stock? And then reliance is basically did the plaintiffs in fact rely on these statements? Did they invest based on them and did they incur some sort of financial loss uh, as a result of that? This is the like the fraud on the market theory. Exactly.
0: Interestingly, we don't we don't really know for sure why the jury went the way uh, they did. Some jurors talked to the plaintiff's attorney afterwards and made some suggestions. But you have to understand jury statements after a verdict the way you understand your teenager statements about why they're home two hours past curfew. You have to, to consume it with a little <laughs> bit of skepticism. The jurors suggested that they believed Musk's story, that he actually believed this stuff about how he had Saudi investors all lined up, and that they didn't think that the plaintiffs uh, had proved that these are the statements that cause fluctuations in the share price. So it sounds as if They may have, if this is truthful, to some extent disregarded the judge's finding that uh, the statements were false and at least reckless, which is something that juries do, okay? They don't necessarily color inside the lines that you give them in, in the jury instructions, and they will take the case kind of in the direction they want to. So a lot of people were saying that it seemed as if Elon Musk's lawyers were during trial kind of directly challenging the judge's findings, really saying that this was, in Musk's mind, true, uh, that he had this funding lined up. And it, it seems as if that may have paid off.
1: And to, and to give a little bit of the factual background there, while there was not like a letter of intent from the Saudi Public Investment Fund, Elon Musk had had some discussions with them about taking Tesla private, and they they did appear to have some interest uh, in that concept of doing so. There's also this sort of this, this interesting fact of the matter that I that shouldn't really matter for this case, but I think does matter for the way people perceive this incident, is that back in 2018, $420 a share looked like an aggressive price for Tesla. It was a ton of capital you needed to raise. It looked like this sort of fanciful claim to say, you know, well, I know I can take Tesla private based on the fact that I, that I had some coffees with people from the Saudi Investment Fund, and they seemed to think that this seemed like it might be a good idea. In the intervening years, the value of Tesla has gone up so much on the market, even after the recent difficulty that Tesla's had with its share price in 2022. Tesla's value is so much higher than it was at the time of this incident that if you had taken Tesla private at 420 a share, you would have made a ton of money. If you had then eventually taken Tesla public again, you would have been able to sell it back for way more than 400 a share. You have to remember, if if you go look up the Tesla share price, there's been a stock split. So you can't directly compare today's share price to the price then, but the market cap is multiples of what it was back then. So I think that, first of all, that makes it difficult to convince people that Elon Musk defrauded people by getting them to invest in his company because the company is worth more than it was at the time that he was doing that. But it also changes the perception of whether it was ridiculous to think that you could probably take the company private based on some conversations like that. In retrospect, it looks like, yeah, the Saudis should have taken that deal. And so and and this goes back to, you know, the, the he's just like this defense. Matt Levine was writing about this for Bloomberg, that if you're trying to understand, you know, how a reasonable participant in the market is going to understand a statement by some figure he's just like that seems like an important factor there. He says, you know, if Tim Cook comes out and says this, that's one thing. If Elon Musk comes out and says something like that, it's entirely different. People know that he's out there smoking weed and dating grimes and doing all this weird stuff. And he's, you know, constantly, you know, going off. And so, yeah, a reasonable investor reacts differently to a statement from Elon Musk than to a statement from a normal corporate executive. And that could create different liability, less liability for the way that he talks.
0: I think that's true. And I I think you also kind of get there to something that's about the way juries work. We lawyers spend some of our time imagining that jurors Carefully read all the jury instructions and carefully follow the path we've laid out for them, and make their decisions based on the actual laws we give it to them. But the truth is, I think it's pretty clear that juries often rule in just sort of a gestalt way. They get an impression of a case, they they decide on a story, and then they find a way to get to the outcome they want. And this was one where I think um, Elon Musk's attorneys very effectively told a story that appealed to the jury more um, and it appealed to them more because, as you said, the, the stock continued to go up. The narratives of loss were not as appealing. And the sort of narrative of the bad boy Tony Stark type wannabe figure um, was appealing to the jury as someone that, of course, you consume him, what he says in a in a sort of a an arch and sarcastic and uh, playful way, and not literally.
1: So that's sort of interesting in terms of Elon Musk wanted this trial moved to Texas because he thought this jury would be so biased against him in San Francisco. And not only did he win, but you're sort of suggesting that the the jury bent the rules in his favor if you believe their statements to the plaintiff's attorney afterward that they seem to have rejected a, a, a ruling that the judge made about whether Elon Musk's statements were, were reckless. Is it that Musk was wrong about the, the attitudes of the San Francisco jury pool and that they were less interested in national politics questions and whether Elon Musk is a right-wing figure and more interested in the idea that he's a tech entrepreneur who actually built something while the plaintiffs here are just people who sit at home and trade stocks on their computer screens? Or is it that juries are pretty good at setting aside their ideological preconceptions and going in with an open mind about the specific dispute rather than about, you know, general sets of feelings they might have about Elon Musk?
0: Who the hell knows, Josh? I mean, (laughs) seriously, though, I, I, I don't think it's the same for all jurors. Let me just say, I have talked to jurors after many trials. And I have never been not at least a little bit appalled at the thought process I hear about how they got where they got, whether I won or whether I lost. So the entire trial system is based on this premise that they carefully listen to the jury instructions, that they're capable of understanding the jury instructions, particularly in complex cases, and that they follow them. And I'm just not sure that's true. So I think it's probably a mixture of all those factors, good and bad, flattering and unflattering.
1: Let's talk about Sam Bankman-Fried. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> A couple of things. One, there's a there's a big piece in the New York Times about the status of the investigation into Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX and even extending to some other crypto companies uh, like uh, Celsius that have had their own financial difficulties that are somewhat related to what happened at FTX and that are facing at least civil investigations, if not criminal investigations. Basically, the thrust of the New York Times story is there are so many people that prosecutors are interested in and talking to and that in addition to talking to lots of former executives from FTX, they. Seem to be asking questions related to what could be wrongdoing by Sam Bankman Fried's brother and his father. The suggestion in the New York Times story being that both of them benefited from the use of resources that may have been misappropriated from FTX. A uh, townhouse in Washington, D.C., that the company bought, that uh, Gabe Bankman Fried, Sam's brother, ran a charity out of. There's a villa in uh, the Bahamas where Bankman Fried's parents were living. And uh, Sam Bankman Fried also gave his parents $10 million last year. So, The thrust of this story seems to be like, if you're SBF, you should be really, really scared. The number of people who might be turned against you is large. If you don't plead, then maybe the state's going to go after your relatives. So that's – this. Seems like a helpful narrative for the government, which is not to say that it's a false narrative. It sounds completely plausible. I'm interested in how it ended up in the paper with like some of the some of the facts in the story. They say at least 11 people related to the investigation told The New York Times. Now, you have a lot of people who may be familiar with aspects of the investigation who are under no confidentiality obligation, people who are interviewed as witnesses or who are possible targets of the investigation. But do you have a sense here when you look at the story of how it came to be in the paper? Who's
0: trying to get what message out there and why? No. Uh, e- and it's perfectly possible that these are themselves witnesses, subjects or targets of the investigation or their lawyers who are uh, often a source of this type of leak. Could be people within the well, government. Well, that's not even
1: r- really technically a leak. They, well, you know, that's true.
0: They know the information. They're telling it to a reporter. They have no confidentiality obligation. Fair enough. But it doesn't to me. I mean, the government, a lot of the time when it leaks, it's leaking in order to hurt the defendant to um, pressure them. And this is just too scattershot really to seem like an effective pressuring of Sam Bankman fried And I don't know that he's susceptible to this type of pressure given his mindset anyway. <laughs> so honestly, when he, his two top lieutenants are already cooperating – And when he's already, in effect, confessed multiple times, sooner or later, you get diminishing returns and pressuring him with, oh, there are more people out there who may cooperate. You know, you can't convict him twice of the same thing. So I don't think that's what's going to pressure him. I also don't know if he's the sort of person who seems like he would be moved by the fact that other people could wind up in harm's way because of him. Uh, Again, he seems too much like a man-child to care about that to me. Uh, So uh, my sense is it's more likely to be the many people in the mix who are being contacted by the government who are releasing this information.
1: What does this sort of situation mean for you if you were like a mid-upper-level employee at FTX? You're someone who reported to the CFO. You might have important information about some aspect of ftx's business operations but probably not as much information as your boss had you might have done something illegal maybe you're not even sure whether or not you did something illegal Is there a rush for the doors, for one thing, there? Like, I assume eventually the government has enough cooperating witnesses from inside FTX and the amount of additional information it gets from another mid-level person isn't that great. But if you're that person, I assume you're at least somewhat concerned about being indicted. Does this sort of story in the paper, does that give you added motivation that, you know,
0: maybe you should go in and talk to the feds? I think it does. Um, We talked before about what are the limits on who get prosecuted in this type of situation. And if you remember... What I said was that just practically speaking in terms of resource allocation and time, they're not going to go after every single person at FTX who might have criminal liability or everyone who got a fraudulent transfer or anything like that. They're going to decide, you know, we're going to go after, uh, let's say, 10 people or whatever it is. And so if, if you're one of these FTX people, your goal is not to be one of those 10 people. And yes, so even if your cooperation is not going to move the ball a lot once they already have much higher level cooperators, you can have an incentive to basically go in and establish yourself as one of the relative good guys, one of the low priority targets, and therefore someone that they're not going to go after. Uh, This is particularly true because you know that uh, the cooperators who are already in are going to be laying out everyone who had any knowledge of of the situation. So, yeah, there's an incentive there. the The trick is, of course, that there's no money to pay for your attorneys. You know, normally there might be indemnification by the company, but the company's in bankruptcy and it's not going to be paying money. To anyone's attorney, so you got to find a lot of money to hire an attorney who knows what they're doing to navigate this.
1: And how do you find that attorney? I mean, one in, another interesting thing in the in the Times story is that there are certain law firms that are representing multiple relevant people uh, in this investigation. Firms like Covington and Burling. There are only so many really top law firms that do white-collar defense, right? I mean, I assume at some point, isn't it, that you want some firm, but then there's somebody else who's caught up in that investigation who's already represented there? Do you you have some sort of conflict waivers or something?
0: Well, there's only so many big firms that do elite white-collar defense. But a lot of these people are not going to be able to afford those big firms anyway. They are ruinously expensive. Um, There are a fair number of solo or small firm practitioners who do white-collar defense. And many of them are competent, and it's a trick to find them. Uh, You're right that some firms are representing multiple people. And that's normal and appropriate when you're talking about pools of people who are witnesses. Where it becomes sticky is where the same firm is representing multiple people who could be subjects or even targets of the investigation. So remember, the feds divide Everybody into three parts. Witnesses who only have information, subjects who is someone they think might have done something wrong and they're interested in exploring it, and targets who are people that they're planning to indict. So generally, it wouldn't be appropriate for the same firm to represent multiple subjects or targets because they can have conflicts of interest. One of them can want to cooperate against the other. It can be in their best interest to do so. So you can get around those with conflict waivers sometimes, but it's a sticky business because if the government knows that I'm representing three FTX employees and one of them wants to cooperate but the other two don't, then they're not going to let me cooperate that person because they think I'm just going to be a conduit of information to my other clients. So that can create real problems. But it's routine for big pools of mere witnesses to be represented by the same firm. And then if you feel you have to spin one out to get their own attorney, you do. Mm-hmm. And so there are communities of white-collar defense attorneys. Many of them are... Uh, former federal prosecutors, you know, how insufferable they can be. And they <laughs> refer cases among each other uh, in this type of situation. I see. Uh, there's also this, this interesting
1: demand letter, really, uh, from FTX. So FTX is in bankruptcy. It still exists. And the bankruptcy administrator, John J. Ray III, his job is basically to find all the money that he can so they can satisfy as many of the claims by creditors, which very often are customers of FTX, to make them as whole as possible for the the money that they've lost here. Some of that involves the the terrible shoddy record keeping at FTX and trying to find, oh, here's some crypto assets we didn't even know about. Uh, But some of it is that Sam Bankman-Fried and his associates gave a lot of money out, both to charities and to political causes, political candidates and campaign committees and that sort of thing. And so there is a letter from the FTX debtors, which is to say the the, the bankruptcy estate, asking if those political entities would please give the money back. And interestingly, to please give the money to the FTX debtors, because these donations generally, they didn't come directly from FTX. There are all sorts of rules about corporate uh, political giving. So very often these were Donations made personally by Sam Bankman-Fried or by his associates. Um, He even had an associate, Ryan Salami, uh, who was giving lots of money to Republicans, even as SBF was, was establishing himself as a major Democratic donor. And so can they do that? Can the bankruptcy estate basically go to some campaign committee and say, hey, I know Sam bankman and Fried gave you this money, but really it's our money, and we think you should give it to us now? And the, the letter is even a little bit threatening. It basically says, you don't have to give us the money voluntarily, but then we're going to sue and try to get it back, and then you'll have to pay it back with interest if you don't give it back now. So it seems pretty aggressive.
0: It is aggressive, but it's not unusually aggressive for bankruptcy. So bankruptcy complicated, but a few basic concepts. A bankruptcy estate can go after what's called preference claims. So anything that the debtor paid in the last 90 days before the bankruptcy is vulnerable to be clawed back. And anything the bankruptcy – the bankrupt entity gave to insiders, to like uh, officers and owners and their families for the last year – can be clawed back. Then beyond that, you start getting into things like uh, fraudulent transfers. So uh, they can sue for fraudulent transfers, which could include transfers that were made by the debtor that uh, left them unable to meet all their obligations. So if they're handing out money in a way that leaves them unable to meet all their obligations, those are potentially fraudulent transfers that can be clawed back. There are some other theories and ways, and those may be particularly apt if these are straw donations or otherwise illegal in their own right in some way. So this is a credible threat. And a lot of politicians are going to want to avoid the bad publicity of a fraudulent transfer suit and the expense and all that type of thing. So, yeah, I mean, the trustee's job is to claw money back to try to satisfy creditors. The funny thing
1: is, you know, I imagine receiving a letter like this as a a campaign treasurer, again, from an entity that was not a donor to the campaign, that says the money that this other donor gave you was really our money. Now, please give it back to us. A court hasn't adjudicated that yet. Presumably, the bankruptcy court eventually would adjudicate claims like that. But They haven't decided this yet. And so it's not, I'm trying to think about how you even report this if you're a campaign. It's not really a refund of the donation because you're not giving the donation back to the entity that gave you the donation in the first place. What if the court ultimately rules in some different way? I mean, I'm not sure you're even allowed to spend campaign money that way. You can't just go around handing campaign money out to bankrupt companies because you feel like it. There are laws about how you have to spend campaign funds on campaign purposes. And so it's, it sort of seems to me like they're, they're stuck in quite a difficult position now that there are these potential problems, both PR problems and, you know, financial problems that await if they don't send this money back. But I, I wonder whether they can just see their way clear to send the money back right now before a court's actually told them to.
0: Well, but campaigns have the ability to settle disputed claims. And so that would probably be the rubric this would fall under. So you don't have to necessarily wait until a court orders you to pay for a campaign to pay on a claim. Uh, you can settle it. And okay. that's more or less what this represents.
1: OK. So there would there be some sort of – I guess there would be some sort of settlement agreement?
0: There would very likely be one that you would try to negotiate to basically to, to limit risk and make sure everything is closed off, make sure they don't come back from war. OK.
1: That's the end of this week's free episode of Serious Trouble. We have much more that's just for paying subscribers. About another 25 minutes of conversation about some more cases that involve more serious trouble for more people. We talk about John Eastman, uh, the uh, attorney who came up with uh, the cockamamie theory about how Mike Pence could steal the 2020 election for Donald Trump if he wanted to. The California Bar is looking to disbar him over that and an action that is unusually political in terms of the wrongdoing that Eastman being accused of. Much of it amounts to basically that he had a terrorist Terrible and crazy legal theory, which is not usually what you just bar someone for. I talked with Ken about that and how the California State Bar uh, seems to feel a need to create a tougher image because of the way they appear to have dropped the ball with some other attorneys engaged in misconduct in California. You may have heard about Tom Girardi, husband of Real Housewife of uh, Beverly Hills, Erica Jane, who is accused of stealing money from clients in a uh, pretty Michael Avenatti-esque Scenario. Avenatti himself, of course, uh, did not end up in trouble with the California bar until he ended up in trouble with federal prosecutors. So we talk about that situation on attorney discipline. Uh, we talk about Mark Pomerantz, who was the uh, special uh, lawyer brought in by the Manhattan DA's office as they were trying to look into a pretty sweeping criminal prosecution for Donald Trump. They ended up bringing that prosecution. Mark Pomerantz was very upset. And now he has a book all about that investigation and what the DA should have done, which seems really odd, right? Like, you know, the former government attorney getting annoyed and then going and describing the investigation to the public. And uh, as Ken describes, that that really is improper and unusual. Uh, and there are certain things that Mark Pomerantz should be worried about in terms of what trouble he's going to get into for spilling all of that in public. And then finally, we talk about George Santos. Uh, George Santos, the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, the New York congressman uh, political reports he's being investigated by the FBI for possibly stealing from a dog uh, that he had a GoFundMe that raised $3,000 that was supposed to be for a surgery for a veteran service dog who badly needed it. The allegation is that Santos then kept the money for himself. It's not, it's not a ton of money as federal prosecutions go, but as Ken and I discuss, prosecutors like fact patterns that will make people really mad and nobody likes it when you steal from a dog. Uh, so anyway, uh, if you want to hear about all of that, go to serioustrouble.show and for $6 a month or $60 a year, you can become a paying subscriber. You'll get every full episode, over 40 episodes a year. You'll also get to participate in our active and lively comment thread at SeriousTrouble.show. So again, if you want to hear all of that, if you want to hear future week's episodes, please go to SeriousTrouble.show and sign up. Uh, and if not in any case, uh, we will be talking with you soon. Thank you.